Welcome to Talk Town. David Fryer was born in Yorkshire outside of Leeds. In the 1980s, when England was a powerhouse in middle distance athletics, he coached 12 international athletes, including his daughter Paula, setting a national 800 metres record, then on to the Tokyo World Championships and the Barcelona Olympic Games. These are some of the moments that make up David's life. Good morning, David. Welcome to Talk Town. Thank you. What's your earliest memory? Uh, looking back, the, the one that sticks out most of all to me is I was around about eight years old. And at that particular time, we used to go, in November, we used to go help pick potatoes up at the farm. And I remember it was 5th of November, which is bonfire night in the UK. I came back from potato picking. I'd been there all day and earned a few shillings just to do that. And when I got back, the bonfire had already been lit and I was devastated. For whatever reason, I thought they would have waited for me to come back before they lit it. But that's how things go. The bonfires, did they have fireworks as well? Fireworks and everything and um, roast potatoes into the fire. Um, and in that, at that particular time, the, the potatoes were just thrown into the hot embers and were left to cook. Nowadays, they wrap them in tinfoil. But uh, at that particular time, there was, uh, there was no tinfoil. And we're talking now, we're talking, oh, 1954. And uh, what part of England were, was, were you in there? Well, I, I originate from Yorkshire, uh, just outside Leeds. And... Um, that's where I was born. I was born in a, a, a little terrace house um, in the middle of the Second World War. Uh, at that particular time, born at home. And I'm one of five children. Uh, we were actually six, but unfortunately my youngest sister died at birth. But yes, I was born in January 1944. Do you have any other memories of things you did as a young boy as well? Like things you did for fun, playing with your mates? Well, for, for myself, the, um, I was an absolute mad about soccer, as they call here, football as we call it in England. Um, so every minute of the day, I would go down to the local park with my friends and we would play soccer. If there was only five of us, we would play what we call shots in, where one person would be in the goal and the other people used to practice shooting from all angles. Um, it, for myself, uh, I, I cottoned on quite early that if you was one of the five or more playing in the outfield, you got a little bit of the ball. But if you were the goalkeeper, you got the ball all the time because the shots were coming in at the goal. So I very early became a goalkeeper. And uh, that's a thing we always did. Soccer every night of the week, all over the weekend, until the sun went down. Just the parents just called you in for dinner? Yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> basically, at that particular time, if you recall, after the Second World War, we were still on rations back in the UK. And so when we were at school, we used to get porridge for us breakfast. And then at lunchtime, we used to have school dinners. And that was our main meal of the day. On coming home after school... Tea, as we used to call it then, was um, two big wadges of bread with butter and jam, and that was your tea. Mm. And, uh, and that was it. You took that and you raced down to the park 
and ate your sandwich while you were while you were playing. So the school meals, what were they? Were they were they like potatoes and roasts? And... The the school meals were very good because basically you got meat, two veg, and also it was followed by a sweet, which could be apple pie and custard or um, rice pudding or sago or things like that. But it was a real substantial meal at that time. Uh, the the government had school meals which were free uh, to ensure that the children were nourished. So what time of the day was was that? That so was at, at midday, 12 o'clock. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> different for Australians to hear mm-hmm. that. Um, do you remember the first day you went to school, the first sort of part of going to <coughs> primary school? I have just a very vague memory because at that particular time, you started school at three. Uh, and I have a vague memory of um, of not being well one time at school. Uh, and I was round the three or four. I wasn't. I hadn't been at school all that long. And I was. I was a little bit ill. And my elder brother took me home. Uh, and I was seated seated on a little pull cart, the, a toy one that the the children have these days. And I was sat on that, and he pulled me all the way home. <laughs> and that's really the the the. The memory that I, I'm, I'm thinking of, it's just a very vague memory of sitting in this cart and my brother pulling me, me home. And how, how were you at school academically? Can you remember classes and you performed as a student? Well, I, I must confess that basically in our family, of the five of us, the other four all went to grammar school and, they, and they, a couple went on to university. Myself, I'll be quite honest with you, I was lazy. I just couldn't be asked. The only thing I could think about was soccer because I was determined that I was going to be a professional soccer player. Um, And so basically my academic side kind of slid out and um, uh, regular clockwork looking at my school reports, you know, David could try better. David is not interested. David, it was all negative that was coming back. But by the time I got to 13, all of a sudden, um, I got an interest, and I don't know where it came from. I got an interest, and I moved from being down uh, the exams, being down the, uh, the bottom of the of the school in the in the class. I moved to the top. Uh, so obviously, I did have the the brain power. It was just the motivation I needed, and and that came later. But unfortunately, that was too late for me to go to a grammar school and that. Uh, as my brothers and that did. Uh, did you have a, obviously soccer, was there any other sporting interests you had that, at sc- primary school? Just at uh, primary school at the moment? Just uh, at the primary school, no, there was, there was, every year there is the, what's known as the English schools uh, athletics. And basically what happens is that you compete at your school and the best of your school then competes against schools in your area. And then if you're the best there, then you compete against the best schools in the uh, uh, county area. And if you're the best there, you go on to the English schools, which the whole competing against the whole of England. I, I used to like uh, running. I, w- I, was, I was quite quick thinking back, but never in a, in a million years did I ever consider being an athlete as such. Again, the main pr- priority was I wanted to be a, f- a footballer, and that was basically it. Did you play... Different levels at soccer. Did you get through? I, I was very fortunate. I I actually played as a as a thirteen fourteen year old. I played for what's known as Leeds City Boys, and what it was that was the 
for youngsters to, to make that team. You, you, you went down and had trials. And I made the Leeds City boys. And then when I left school, I was very fortunate that I managed to get into the academy at Leeds United. Unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, um, I didn't make the grade, so uh, I, was, I was soon asked to uh, exit the field, as you might say. <laughs> um, uh, but um, I played for oh, 15 years as a, um, in amateur uh, and really, really enjoyed that. Uh, but later on in life, I moved into uh, badminton, which I, I played with my good lady, and we played to uh, quite a considerably high level. From the, just going back a little bit to high school, did yes. you... Um, you said you did. You go to high school? No, I didn't go to high school. I just went to the straight. As it was in in England at that particular time, mm. you sat at eleven years old. You sat your eleven plus exam. If you passed your eleven plus, you then went to grammar school, and from grammar school, you, the opportunity to go to university. Because as I, as I said, I just couldn't be, I couldn't be bothered at that particular time. Um, the eleven plus exam, um, I just. It did nothing with it. So, so if you didn't pass the 11 plus, you stayed at the, the school the way you were until you left at uh, 14 to 15. And what followed on from there, like an apprenticeship? or? Well, what I did, I went into my father's building business, which, um, you know, I mean, I've always, been, I've always been good with my hands. And it was something that I, um, I really enjoyed. I, 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 found, I found my niche in life, for want of a better word. And I was very fortunate in the sense of, at the particular time, I, I, I didn't realise it, but my father said, when I started, he said, uh, right, first year, you will go with the bricklayer. The second year, you will go with the plumber. The third year, you will go with the plasterer. The fourth year, you'll go with the electrician. And you went through every trade. So in actual fact, you did like a seven, eight year apprenticeship. And also at the end of that, you did one year, I did one year in the office, which I hated after doing... So many years outside on uh, working and then all of a sudden being stuck in an office. But now looking back, I realised that because when he retired, I took over, I took over running the business. It's like a real master builder, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, I believe that um, what I actually got from what I call the old enders, they taught me how to do it. And at the end of the day, there was no shortcuts. And at that particular time, everybody was just paid a wage. There were no bonuses. There was no, uh, you had to, there was no price work or anything. It was all, you got it done and you got it done properly. And that's what we, uh, that's what we wanted. With the war, was your father um, involved in the war? My father was involved. He, he went away uh, during the war um, and he was, um, he was in North Africa and, and in, um, in Italy. Um, we, we, we clubbed together, did the family later in his life. And we paid for a trip for him to go back to Italy to uh, visit one or two of the places where he'd been during the war. Obviously, that changed quite a bit, but it was nice for him and my mum to go there just to, to reminisce, for want of a better mm -hmm. word. Did, um, uh, did he have any um, problems or issues from the war? Was there uh, anything you noticed or you found out later that he was affected by? Um... Well, my father never spoke about it and he would never, he would never discuss the war in any shape or form. We, occasionally we would ask him, he would say, no, there was it, um, it, it was a war, it's done, it's finished, and that is it. Whether he had any bad experiences, everything, he, he just never, never spoke about it. So it was, it was hard to 
learn things about it. We, we, we heard one or two snippets, but that was all. We, un, we understand, but he would never confirm it, that um, he was torpedoed in the Mediterranean and had to swim to shore. And on his way there, he saw, um, he saw uh, people, people's heads bobbing around in the water, which must have been a terrifying experience. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak about that. But we, we never, we, he was never like today when, the, you know, they've got post-war syndrome and things like that. We never saw anything like that. But we, we were brought up in a very strict Victorian house. And so basically it was the traditional British stiff upper lip and you got on with life. Your mother, what sort of relationship did you have with your mother growing up? Like? Well... And we all say that our mothers are the best in the world, but I think I can honestly say that my mum was the best in the world <laughs> because my father was over six foot tall. My mum was under five foot and she was copper ginger hair and she ruled the roost. But what a wonderful woman she was. She, she from, from being the big family that we were, um, I mean, seven of us uh, and everything, she she really was a, an absolute wonder woman. When I when I think back now that my father was running running his business, but building it, being a building in those days was not like today. You were you were more or less just a workman. You weren't making massive money or anything. You were making a wage. So my mother, bringing up five children, she had a morning job which she went out before we went to school cleaning offices. She'd then come back home, see us off to school. At lunchtime, she actually worked on school dinners. So she was there preparing the food and everything for the school dinners. Then when we, uh, when we, my father came home from work, my mother then went cleaning offices again in the evening and came back. And that's how we managed to survive. Because basically in them days, there, was, there wasn't, I mean, it's after, just at the end of the war, after the war, there were no money. People were... were scratting around for all sorts plus the fact is you had food coupons because everything was on ration you couldn't just go to the shop and i'll have that i'll have that i'll have that because you couldn't buy it even if you had the money you couldn't buy it because you had a ration card and so and money was tight so basically she was an absolute an absolute star one thing we did say don't forget she brought up four boys and a girl my sister is the youngest we always said that if there had been a world championships for throwing pans, she would win. She could hit you with a frying pan from 50 metres and, and make sure that, oh, she was an absolute star. And, but she was a wonderful woman, an absolute wonder. At, at that age with um, teenage family, um, can you remember things you got up to or dances you'd gone to, just things that you enjoyed as well, family or yeah. friendships with mates. Well, the one thing that I do remember was that um, I was I was in a in a, a Boy Scout group, and also down at the local church hall, what they used to have, they used to have uh, dances, which were dances then, not like discos. It was ballrooms, things, and all that have you. Um, and we used to go down there, and um, we did the uh, we did dances down there, and that was a way of trying to get to know some of the local girls. It moved on from there. What we did then is um, we went, as, as I got older and, and, and got to the age where I could drink, um, we used to go down into Leeds and then we'd go to what was then uh, the Mecca Locarno. Well, it was, it was a time of when rock and roll was just started. Oh, and that was a wonderful time. I remember my father, when rock and roll came out and it was on the radio, 
and it'd only been it only been out about maybe twelve month, eighteen month. And my father heard this on the radio at this particular day, and he turned round and he says to me, he said, "Turn that radio off." He says, "That bloody jungle music." He said, <laughs> because as you can imagine, my father was used to all the waltzing and 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 all the all the uh, old the old singers and everything, and uh, it was. But that was oh, that was. That was a fabulous time for me. I I honestly believe that the, the music. I know music evolves and everything, but that was such a uh, a time of change, where all of a sudden we as teenagers we started getting some freedom and we started having money in his pocket and there were places to go and things to do and and rock and roll was the was the base of of letting off as much steam as you could. May and my good lady, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, the Americans call it jive. We called it uh, bopping. Um, me and my good lady were quite good, actually, at, uh, at the old rock and roll dancing. You know, <laughs> very good. Can you? Did you see any bands? Like, we just imagined. Did you see the Beatles and things well, like that? <laughs> there was it. I never went to see the Beatles because they they came a bit later. But mm. uh, before uh, there was a there was a crooner out there with rock and roll called Frank Ifield. I went to see him at the Grand Theatre in Leeds, um, and he was like a semi rock and roller. He was he was more of a crooning type of rock and roll, but you just couldn't you couldn't get in. What I what I do remember absolutely when um, Bill Haley came out and he started doing Rock Around the Clock, they made a movie, and basically um, we went to see the movie. And during the movie, they were, they were playing all these tunes and everything. People actually got up and were dancing in the aisles. It was that's that's the kind of exuberance that it brought on to people it was it was wonderful oh wow it's incredible did uh did you have a car or a motorbike a motorbike at that time like as a young teenager well, when i started off i was i was 16 and uh, i decided that um, i needed some wheels so at that particular time there was uh, what was known as mods and rockers the mods were the ones on the scooters that were puffter boys as we used to call them <laughs> and the rockers were the like the bike is here in Australia, you with the, the hard men and everything. Anyway, I got a motorbike, and it was a second-hand one, and it was a Francis Barnett. Well, the timing kept slipping, and so you'd, get a, you'd, you'd go for maybe 10 miles, and all of a sudden it would just stop. So you had to get out, reset the timing, and off you'd go again. So after about four or five months, I was fed up with this. So I, I traded that in, and I got a Triumph Tiger Cub. Very nice, 125cc, lovely there, you know, cruising round, coming up to, to the cafes where we used to go, and, and the girls used to come out and looking at the motorbike and everything. And then there was a couple of friends of mine who got bigger bikes than mine, and then all the girls seemed to be going round there, so I'm thinking, hang on a minute here. So I'd saved my money. I was, I was, I was very, very... Uh, I was very tight with my money, I'll be quite honest with you. The, the, uh, I didn't throw my money around, so I'd saved some money. So I went out and I bought a brand new Triumph Bonneville, which was a 750cc. It was the fastest thing in the world at that particular time. And I went and bought this. So, of course, I'm thinking, oh, now, now's the time. So I, uh, I used to go out on a Sunday and I used to go to see my auntie that was, lived at the coast. And I used to take different routes. And this was the time before motorways or freeways as they call them here. Um, and I used to uh, go all over the country roads, and I'd had the bike about two to three weeks, and uh, I'm travelling along this country road, and it's just outside a, a town called Harrogate. 
I'm going along this, this road and it's quite a windy day and I'm trucking along and it's a nice and windy, well, being on the bikes, that's what bikers like, windy roads so you can go along. Anyway, I'm coming along this road and then there, there's a, this little sign that's no more than 200 by 150 and it just says bend. So I dropped it down the cog and I starts going round the bend and I'm leaning over and I'm leaving over and I'm leaning over and all of a sudden the footrest is now scraping on the tarmac and I'm going over and going over and I'm just looking there's no pavement all there is is a bits of grass and a hedge and I'm going I think oh I've just made it just made it and then on my right hand side there was a, a big thorn hedge and there was a gateway and as I came level with the gate the wind came and just pushed me that little bit hit the grass woof, and the bike was off and I, I don't tell a lie there was a pole and it was about 75 meters round and on top of that pole was another little tiny sign that said bridge and I managed to hit the pole smack dab in the middle the the front forks and the wheel came straight round into the engine and just and I went flying over the hedge into a plough field well I managed to scramble out and eventually a, a farmer came along and saw my predicament and he threw what was left of this wonderful bike that I'd got onto the back of his, <laughs> his trailer and took me into the nearest village where I managed to uh, ring a friend. Of course, no mobiles in them days. Ring a friend and he came out for me and we, we threw it on the back of the truck <laughs> and we took the scrap back. And I then decided, I think four wheels might be better. <laughs> and you nothing, nothing into... No, I was, very, I was no, I black and blue all down the inside of my leg because obviously I came off sideways. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I was fine because I'd gone over the hedge and landed in the ploughed field yeah. and it had been freshly ploughed, so it was quite soft for me landing. So I was a little bit fortunate, you know what I mean? But hey, God. fun and games. Well, the ploughed field sounds like a very good intro to um, <laughs> athletics. You were a long jumper or a pole holder and you didn't even know. Yeah. Um, so what sparked your interest in coaching? Um, well, it was funny. I, I was, um, at that particular time, I'd finished playing soccer. This was round 1980, and I'd finished playing soccer, and I was playing badminton. I was playing at quite a high level, and me and my good lady were playing. And we were playing four, sometimes five nights a week. Well, one of the days was, was on a weekend. And um, we were doing very well. We were playing in top division, and I was playing for the county and things like that. Anyway... Um, I used to, the village where we lived, I used to run around the village just for my own fitness. Now, I'd been at, um, I'd been at uh, Leeds United and they had professional coaches, not maybe as, as skillful as they are now, but they were professionally coaching the, the soccer players. When I, when I went back to badminton, I, I'm, I'm this kind of person that if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. I don't want to play at it. You either do it well or you don't do it at all. And in the village where I lived, there was an ex-England badminton player. And I, I knew him from, we used to go to the pub. I went to him, Bob Arnett was his name. And I went to Bob and I said to him, look, I want to get back into badminton, but I want to really, I want to really get into this now. So I said, I wonder if you'll coach me and my good lady. So he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I bought his beer and he coached me for, uh, for badminton. And it was amazing. We, we, what we did there, his, his coaching that he did... I was, I was really surprised. We would spend maybe a full week, four days a week, and all we would do would practice serving. Now, what I did, and, and I think this is relevant, but going on to, on to my athletics, 
is that he would have you standing in the serving square and what he would have, he would have four what we used to call metal biscuit tins and he'd put one on each corner at the front, at the side and the two at the back and you had to serve the shuttle into each container and basically you had six shuttles and you did it into one then you had six into another and this was just and you had just to clear the net now this was the professionalism that he was teaching us and there are all other aspects that he used to do as well teaching you there and I think that's why we, we got to play at such a high level because he did there so just going back to my athletics I used to run round the village to keep fit from my badminton so this particular day this was about Oh, this will be 1982, 83. Um, I was running around the village. I went out to run around the village and my daughter came to me and she was 12. She came to me and she said, Dad, can I come and have a run with you? Now, my daughter had done the ballet. She'd done the horse riding. She'd done all the things that girls do. And she wanted to come for a run. So I said, all right. So I toodled around the village with this 12-year-old at my side. And we went round once and I, I dropped her back off home. And I said, all right, I'm, I'm off now and I'll go. And I did my training. So she came a couple of times and then she said, oh, I like this. So I said, oh, right. I said, and I must confess, at that particular time, I was being selfish. I said to her, well, I think you should join a club because there's other girls and that and people of your age and everything. You'll have fun instead of just running with me. And I must confess, what I was thinking of was I'm running around here too slow for me, <laughs> for, my, for my fitness, <laughs> you see. So I took her down to this club at Longwood Harriers. So I took her down there and... Uh, introduced her to that then and I was thinking right right I'll get her down introduce her she'll get to know people then I can just drop her off she can go do her training or whatever she's going to do I can bug her off and go and pick her up to go back for her like a lot of people do these days mm. so anyway I said to her right here we are no 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 you're not going you're staying here with me I'm not staying here by myself so of course dad ends up running around with them so at that particular time it's winter and in England, in wintertime, it's all, at that time, it was all aerobic running. So basically, out we'd get onto the roads, and we'd be off. And we'd be a, a five or a six miler, or whatever the, the coaches there that had in mind. So off we went, and she's at the back, because she didn't know anybody, and I'm at the back. So eventually, week by week by week, and she still wouldn't let me go. Want you here, want you here. So we're going around, and she's getting in better, better. And she gets up, she's in with the front runners. So one of the coaches came to me, and he said, Oh, your daughter's running really well. I wondered if, if you would mind. He said if I would, uh, uh, if I could take her and, and give her a bit of extra coaching. So I said, fine, that's that's all right. If she's all right with her, and she was she was fine with that because a couple of her friends were having one day a week extra coaching rather than the two days a week at the club. So anyway, she she was there being coached there uh, down there and everything. And just going back now, if you, because I'd been coached professionally at soccer. And I've been coached professionally at badminton. I'm watching what's happening and I'm thinking, something's not right, but I don't know what. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, so how, how do you know? And it, it, it came to me where they were doing a session and they might be doing, and I can't remember the exact thing now, but say, for instance, I go to the coach and say, what are you doing tonight? And say, well, we're doing 1,000 metre reps. Okay, don't forget, I'm, I'm a novice in, in athletic coaching or anything. You know, what, what are you doing? 1,000 metre reps. Okay. So what's that going to do? Oh, that's for VO2 max. Okay, fine. I mean, I'd heard the word. Didn't really understand it, but I'd heard the word. So a few weeks later, we were down there, and they're doing some 200-meter reps. All right, what are you doing 200-meter reps for? VO2 max. Oh, 
Well, that kind of rung a little bell saying, wait a minute, you've got 1,000 metres there and you've got 200 metres there. And it's the same, but the 200 are quicker than the 1,000. So something didn't ring, you know, it didn't ring true. So anyway, I soon moved her from there to, to somewhere else, to, to something else. Now, at that particular time, there was about five girls down at the club. And what the other coaches used to say, they call them the no-hopers. Because it was, they'd come down there, they were no good, or just go across there and do something by yourself. And they were there. So I'm thinking, right, how do I find out what is right and what isn't right? Or what, what should you be doing or not doing? So basically, I went on and did my first two coaching courses, level one and level two in England. Also what I did, being a Yorkshireman, and I, I say it as it is, I'd go to race meetings and I'd look round at who the best athletes were. And I'd find out who the coach was and I'd go to them and say, I'm David Fryer, um, can I pick your brains? And most of them were quite fine about it, you know, and everything. So I was learning from coaches and learning the principles from the, the course I went on. So basically, I went to these five girls and I said, look, I'm learning how to coach. Would you like me to, to do a bit with you? Well, they were over the moon. I mean, somebody was taking an interest in them, you see. So I said to them, I said, well, the beauty I found about it was that because I was never a runner, for want of a better word. I didn't come with any baggage. I didn't come with any training sessions that I did. I just came and I was just wide open. So basically, I started then uh, with these no-hopers. Within two years, Donna, one of the girls, Donna, Donna Hannon there, she, um, she was a 15, she was a distance runner. When I say distance, she was 1,500 metre runner. She was 13. So basically, uh, at that particular time, um, we were looking for uh, getting to the English schools and it was the county championships. And at that time, you had to do the qualifying time exactly or quicker. Now, the qualifying time for her at that time was 4.52 for 1,500 metres. Now, if you ran 4.52.1, you didn't go. You had to be smack on. So Donna had run just under five minutes. And I mean, 59 plus. So... I'm just giving the example of Donna. The other girls were very similar. Anyway, so Donna, Donna said to me, I'd like to go to the English school. I said, well, we'll try, we'll try, we'll, we'll work it out. And so we, uh, we came to the Yorkshire Championships. So Donna ran, and she, she ran second. And we're on the time, I'm looking at the watch, and I've got 451.8 on my watch. But don't forget, I'm her coach, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I could be a little bit <laughs> biased, as you might say. So anyway... Um, we waiting, waiting, and then they announced the result, and the time came up, and she ran 4.52 dead. Mm. So we were, she was absolutely over the moon. So then we'd got six weeks. So basically, I said to her, brilliantly, we'll, we'll train now for six weeks. So what we did, we, we, we reduced the volume, and we, we started putting speed work in. And, and that, with my limited knowledge that I had there, I'm looking at, this is what I want to do. I, I don't want to, I want it to be fresh and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, she goes to the English schools. So she's got heats, semi and the final. That's if she gets through. So she runs a heat. She qualifies. She wins it. So, and she gets through 4.48. I said, oh, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic, girl. You've really, you know, you've knocked another four seconds off. You know, what, what can you ask for? You know, brilliant. Whatever happens now, you've, you've done great. Right, so she goes into the semi. Gets in the semi. Sticks to the girl in the front. Sticks like glue goes over the finishing line with her, right? First two to qualify, 4.45. I 
I said, Don, fantastic girl, absolutely fantastic. I thought, it's not going to last, you know, it's, it's, but she's got there in the final. Goes in the final, she runs fourth, 4.36. Couldn't believe it, 4.36, you know, and she was absolutely fantastic, you know. Anyway, there was it, Donna went on and she, she got um, a junior international vest over cross country, uh, as did some of the others. And by this time, the group was growing because we were getting quite a bit of success with them. The group was growing and getting bigger. And, um, and then I had one or two, how can I put it? I had one or two youngsters coming to me that had potential. So I'd say to every one of them, the, I'd, I'd always had the parents there. And I said to them, look, I've got some ideas that, that I think might work. I said, but basically, it's got to be with your uh, agreeance because you are my guinea pigs. I said, because I think I'm, I want to move away from this old, what I call the old-fashioned traditional thing of doing miles and miles and miles and miles. I said, I want to move away from that. So I got invited to, um, well, three of my athletes got invited to a weekend away uh, up in Cumbria. And it was a training weekend. And there was lectures on as well. So I went up uh, with them. And uh, basically, uh, they had a few lectures on the Friday night. And then on Saturday, Peter Coe, Seb Coe's father, was doing a lecture. He did, the, he did his lecture, and some of the others didn't. It was like, fin- didn't finish well, 8 o'clock at night. And then we had a meal, and then there was, there was a room about three metres square in this. This was in the middle of nowhere. A three metre square room, and that was the bar. And you can imagine, 60 athletes and coaches trying to get in there to get a, a drink. So I just said to one of the organisers up there, I said, is there a pub anywhere nearby? I said, I just fancy having a pint. And so I can go through some of the stuff that the lecturers had given us and, and talked about. So they said, oh, yeah, come a mile down the road. There's no lights or anything. There's a pub down there somewhere. You know what I mean? So anyway, I got on with paperwork and everything, and I ventured down. Goes in the pub, gets a pint, planks my bum down, and what is it? And looks across. And there's Peter Coe sat in the corner on his own. So, again, being a Yorkshireman, I walked across. Hi, Peter. I've listened to your lecture everything. Can I sit down and chat? Yeah. Four hours later, <laughs> after listening to him on my own, and, do you know, he never gave me one training session. What he did, he went through the principles. Oh, that's all he did. He went through the principles. And that's what I base my coaching today on, the principles that he told me, you know, that he should be, should be looking at. And uh, so I came back, of course, full of all this knowledge from him. When with the, uh, with the uh, uh, agreeance of my, my young athletes, uh, we changed quite a lot of things because there were things that I was, avenues that I was thinking about that he pointed me in the right direction. So it was brilliant. I, 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 you couldn't buy that. Mm-hmm. It was, it, you just couldn't buy that. Uh, and again, but I never... I always, again, sought out really top-class coaches to talk to them about different ideas. Wilf Pesch, he was brilliant. He was at uh, Leeds, uh, Leeds Carnegie College. Uh, Wilf, was, um, Wilf was the South African uh, uh, senior, senior coach for a number of years. And that. But I talked to Wilf. He, he told me things. He, did, he uh, coached Peter Elliott and things like that. I know a lot of people won't understand them names because they're from way back. And don't get me wrong, I, it's fair enough. But um, <laughs> my, my era, of course, was Elliott, Coe, Cram, um, uh, Ovette. You know, all, all these, these top ones before these Kenyans came along. But, um, you know, I, I learned such a great deal just by talking to these coaches. And they, they were quite, quite amenable. 
And I'll be quite honest with you, even, even a lot of the top athletes, I've found that the lower the coaches are, they'll tell you nothing. The higher the coaches are, they're quite, quite amenable to, to discuss things with you and everything like that. Uh, it's amazing. Um, you know, international coaches will sit down and talk about things and somebody that's got, somebody that's run 150 for 800 won't tell you a bloody thing. Mind you, I always think of it this way. If they've only run 150, maybe they don't know anything that's worth listening to. But that's just my opinion. But I, there is, there is one, I'll give you an example now. This wasn't a coach. This was an international uh, 10,000 metre gold medalist, Kaliskar. We went, we went to altitude training. There was me, just me and Paula. We went, uh, British Athletics were doing an experiment on altitude training. And um, they rang us up and asked, would we be prepared to, uh, to do the trials? So we said, yes. Now, we already had a phys- physiologist that we, we used regularly. So the three of us went. And um, we, we went for the standard three weeks because altitude, you've got to go for a minimum three weeks. Anyway, we goes up there and Cali Scar was there. Gold medalist, 10,000 metres, an absolute phenomenal world record holder at that particular time. Anyway, so we get there and, and we get talking to him. And we are in a place called Fontremeur in France, up in the Pyrenees. It's Easter time-ish. And we were there and he was doing his training with his, uh, with his training partners. We, we got talking to him because on the night time there was nothing to do really and so we're in there we're playing ping pong and watching a bit of television we got to know, I got to know him really well and we, we were just talking one day and I was saying to him like I did to coaching that you know what kind of training do you do you know what, what do you do to get to your kind of standard so he said come with me we went up to his room and there was his training diary he said there read now this, this guy is the gold medalist and he's, it, it isn't that he's retired anything. He's a gold medalist. And he's opening up his training diary to what he's doing. And I says to him, I said, you know, no, I don't know any athlete that would do that. And do you know what his answer was? You can't hurt me. He says, I'm 10,000 metre gold medalist. Your daughter is an 800 metre runner. You can't hurt me, so why shouldn't I share? Mm. And that, <laughs> that's brilliant. Mm, you know, amazing. absolutely brilliant, Amazing. Did you, did you have anything different in there that you had? Oh, seen there, were, there was some of the stuff. Yeah, I, I got one or two of his sessions that I still use today. Mm. That, that really, uh, you know, uh, he looked at some of the stuff because I showed him what we did. And he looked at one or two things and he says to me, he said, I'll be quite honest with you, that particular thing there, I wouldn't do as much as that, I'd do less. But I'd go a bit quicker. And so it was, it was all good insight into, into, into what you do. You do that as a coach, don't you? You're like a bowbird. You collect things you like, try them. If they work, you keep them. Yes. Shell them, and then a few years later, you might get another athlete. You think, oh, I reckon I can try yeah. that again. And yeah. You try it again. It works really well with that one that didn't work the other. Correct. Time. Correct. And you think, oh, why didn't I use that last year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, that's it. It's trial and error, isn't it? Mm. Because the same thing doesn't work exactly the same for everybody. Yeah. So you're looking at what works for each individual, yeah. and and what what comes best, and. Because what, what? Yeah, what I'm working with at the moment with Daddy Thompson's one of his gym programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my kids just think it's crazy. And I said, well, everyone who's doing this in Great Britain can break 10 seconds for 100 metres. So yeah. maybe, you, maybe there's something in this. I said, but it's just so strange. I mean, mm. yep, that's yeah. Something. It's back to basics. Yeah. So, uh, and Daddy Thompson's had huge success with this. Yes. So it's funny, you pick up things and I'm 
it's amazing how uh, yes. you just grab something and try it. Yeah, yeah. And if it yeah. doesn't well, work, you oh, can well. modify it a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I would think. It, yeah. It's all about trial and error. Yeah. There's no there's no magic bullet. There's no magic formula. You you try things and see what works and what doesn't work, mm. and and you go from there. But I know. Again, just going back to this about me not being a runner, an athlete. Um, every session I ask my athletes to do, right from the early days, I tried on myself first. I never ever give just said that's what you're doing i tried it on myself because i wanted to know what it felt like i wanted to know what i was getting out of it because of the vo2 max scenario in the early days i wanted to know what is happening you know how does it feel what am i what am i achieving and uh, every every session and, and i mean obviously i don't do it now because of my age and everything now but at that particular time i was very fit and um, I could I could train with Paula um, when she was um, when she was knocking on the door for going to the Olympics when we were just before she went to the Olympics. I I was doing training sessions at her pace with her. I was doing long runs with her and and everything. I mean there was the group, but uh, <laughs> just just reminiscing now there was a girl there was a girl. as 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 they they were progressing everything and I was getting older and getting slower. There was a girl came and joined the group, and uh, oh, I forget her name now. But anyway, young blonde girl, she was eleven. So mum came and said, "Can can she join your group?" I said, "Well, normally I don't take them that young." I said, "But she can come and she can do a bit and back and everything." So anyway, she liked to go. She liked runs. She liked long runs. I said, "Okay." I said, "We're going out for for this run." So I said, "Well, we'll go." I said, "And what you do? You stay with me." So I said, "I'm not going all that fast now. So you're going to run with me, and we'll, you know." So off off we went. And we did the 40-minute run or whatever it was. And um, away we went. Anyway, we came back and uh, I said, I was like, oh, that was fine. I said, okay, yeah. So she came down and did one track session that week. And then we came to, because Sunday was always our Sunday run. So we came to Sunday. So she said, all right, if I come. I said, yeah, yeah, come. I said, all right. So we set off like kind of thing and we're going. And I'm thinking, she's pushing it a bit here. <laughs> We got halfway around and I said, so I'll go on, you know, <laughs> and she disappeared into the sunset. <laughs> 11 years old, so then I decided, I thought, right, enough's enough now, so I started going around on my bicycle. <laughs> but that's, you know, it's evolving. It's you know. a hard thing as a coach, I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I had the kids running along the river, doing stairs, running with them, and it got to a stage where I couldn't do the gaps between the stairs. Yep. And I thought, this is getting sad. <laughs> got the bike yeah. out, the same yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yes, the um, just going back to, to ideas and, and things like that, because of what things we were trying that were different to what other people were doing at that particular time, um, we got, I got a phone call one day from the British Medical Centre, Olympic Medical Centre down in London, and uh, Professor Falterman rang me up, and he said... Uh, We've been hearing things about you, some of the stuff that you're doing, and uh, we wonder if you'd like to chat. I said, yeah, fine, no problem. So he came up from London, which is you know, a five-hour drive, but he came up and we sat and we chat. And uh, he was saying, well, you do this session, and what do you get by that? I said, well, I do this session here because that's what I am achieving. No, no, you can't. You can't achieve that. No, we do. No, wait a minute. Well, can you prove it to me? I said, no. I said, I'm not a scientist. I, I can't produce figures and one thing or another. I said, but I'm telling you, when my athletes do that, they tell me this is what it feels like. This is what's happening. So an example that I'll give you here was that 
we we that particular time we were doing a big block of 200s we do 20 times 200 off a minute recovery and basically the athletes the information coming back to me was when we get to number 12 it's, it's getting hard at 12 but from 12 to 16 it feels easier and then from 16 to 20 it's hard again so i'm looking at it and one thing or another and i say i'm not a scientist but i'm looking at it and i'm saying well hang on a minute the body when you go in there you're producing lactate and it's a slow build it's building building the, the lactate we, we, we did testing later on which proved it but anyway so it's building and building and um, when you get to 12 i'm looking at it this way this body that we've got is a magic piece of equipment this will heal itself it will do anything you can so if the lactic's building up the body will try and neutralize it so basically the body is trying to buffer the, the acid. So, I mean, now the, the, the terminology, your buffering system is there. But at that particular time, it wasn't, it wasn't in. So, I'm saying this, no, no, no. Professor Fulton would say, no, no, that doesn't happen. The lactic will build, build, build. I'm saying, no, the lactic comes down because the, it, there's something going on in the body that's neutralising it. No, 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 no. So he said, right, what we'll do, we'll do some testing. I said, fine. So he arranged and he came up when we were doing the 200 session. And he came up with his team. And they were at the side of the track. And it took four athletes. And every time we did a 200, they, they, they came there, they took a quick blood sample from the ear, because they always take it from the ear, because the blood going, that's where you get a true sample. If you take it from the finger, you've lost some of the lactic already. You take it from the ear. So anyway, it was pinpricking the ear, and, and that would just keep going all the time, you know. And then the jog across, because we did it middle to middle. So the sample, jog across, bang again. So we'd always end up with so. He rang me up about 10 days or so later. He said, uh, oh, he said, you're right. He says, we've, we've tested it. He said, and the lactate level comes down. He said, then it goes again. So he said, it must be, you know, the buffering system at that time. So anyway, he came up regularly doing testing with his different sessions and that we were doing. And I'm saying to him, I'm going by what my athletes feed me back. Not, you know, that's what I'm getting from them. So he came up and... Uh, and he said, yeah, fine. He says, we, we like what you're doing and, and you, you've really enlightened us a little bit because all their stuff is coming out of, out of books and everything. Uh, and again, if you remember, back in, well, you won't remember, but back in them days, there wasn't the, the scientific research that they do nowadays. So anyway, um, he, he then introduced some of the stuff that we did. He introduced that across the board and, and other people started picking it up. But there was another, there was another thing that we did. We used to go to the gym. And uh, we'd do weight training. But it, weight training that I devised for athletes. Because what I didn't want, I didn't want big, bulky people. I wanted strong but lean. So the methods that I used for, for, for were things that I just devised myself. So basically, well, one or two, I got one or two exercises from Peter Coe, um, and I, But the other things we did. Anyway, we'd, we'd gone in and we did the, we did the weight training in the, in the gym. And it was... Uh, it was an animal gym because a friend of mine owned it and they let us go, they let us use it for nothing. So there was just, it was just a senior athlete, about five out of six athletes that went in. So Paula being one of them. So anyway, we'd go in there and all these animals there, we'd be looking at these skinny <laughs> athletes and everything. But anyway, so we go in there and they'd done the session of the gone in for a shower to get changed. And I'm sat at the desk, at the table there. And there's all the bodybuilding magazines and all scattered around with all these Swartz nigger and all these things on it, you know, kind of thing. And then I just saw this little headline on one of these magazines and it said, 
Why don't the world record holders at squatting squat? That kind of thing, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so I picked it up, because I'm waiting for them, I've not to do, so I read it. And it was from Bulgaria. And basically, at that particular time, the Bulgarians were the world record holders at squatting. And what the coach found was that over... What, they, were, they were squatting such heavy weights they were having knee problems, even though they were strapped up and everything like that. So he was looking at it and thought, how can I get over this? And obviously he's a forward-thinking coach and everything. Anyway, what I did, he devised step-ups with weights. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. And what I did, he had a 9-inch and a 12-inch concrete block. And he was stepping up onto that. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So... A couple of days later, I went down to the gym on my own, and I took a couple of concrete blocks down, a couple of beds of blocks, you know, <laughs> and I put them up, and I put some weight, not a lot, put some weight on and, and stepped up. But what he said was that 9-inch block, quads, 12-inch blocks, hamstrings. How can that be right? You're stepping up. You're using your quads. What I found out when I did it, yeah, when you're stepping up, you're using your quads. When you're stepping down from the 12-inch, it's really working your hamstrings. So anyway, I looked at this and I talked to a couple of senior athletes and I said, look, you know, here, because we did squats that time. I said, I'm looking at this and I'm always conscious that squats are bad for your knees. I said, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to look at what we do stepping up instead of squats. So I said, right, okay. So at that particular time, we'd been down to London and they'd done testing on Paula and a couple of the other athletes. So we had some figures about leg strength. Because they got on their machines and everything and tested them. So we knew what her leg strength was. So anyway, so I said, I'd like to, you, I'd like to take squats out and we'll, we'll do step-ups. Okay, so we started off, we put it on there and they were stepping up. Now, Paula, at that particular time, she was squatting, she was squatting about 90 kilo, between 90 and 100 kilo. She was, and for somebody that's five foot four and was it, she was, she was strong. It's pretty strong, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, and of course, you see, because we're up at that weight, I'm, I'm getting concerned, mm. you know, injuries. So anyway, so I said, right, what we'll do? I said, we'll go down, we'll do a third. We'll take a third, we'll do 30K. So she put that on and she started stepping up. Now, to start off with, it was a, a little bit awkward because it's getting used to it kind of thing. But she's stepping up. Anyway, so she's stepping up. And so we, when she got used to everything, we started using progression. So we're progressing through and progressing through. Anyway, eventually we got up. She, she ended up stepping up 84 kg. So she was actually stepping. So it's on one bloody leg. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she's stepping up 84 kilo. So anyway, it was, time came around where we were due to go back down to London again for testing. So we went down and she got on the, on the, uh, on the machine there. Bloody hell, what's happening? Believe it or not, we got a 40% increase in leg strength. So Just in that one drill. In that one drill. <laughs> so... What I did, I had a friend that lived at the other side of uh, the hill in, in Manchester. So I said, I rang him up, Chris. Chris did middle distance for us. He had two, he had two athletes, um, uh, Winrow and Burgess, and they won the junior 800 metres um, that year. Anyway, I rang him up and I said, Chris, I've got this here and this is what I found. I said, told him what we did and everything like that. So he said, oh, leave it with me now. Do it. He rang me back a couple of months later. He said, fabulous. He said, Leg strength going out of the window, he said, and not problems with squatting. Because with really heavy weights with squatting, they tend to go too far. Mm. So anyway, so that was great. So we, we, we 
throughout squats and uh, and did weighted step ups. And uh, but obviously, athletes just don't go straight into that. My my principle is they do two years of circuit training, body weight, you know, there, and then you move on to light weights, odd ones added into the circuits before you actually get onto a full. You know, um, the full thing. You can't just go get in there. Practice as a junior, what you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Learn the movement pattern, not the weight pattern. Correct. So that was, and and that was brilliant. And uh, and that was the year when when Paula qualified. She qualified for Tokyo um, World Championships. And um, and we both went there, managed to uh, save a few pennies. and, And we went there and she competed. Yeah, she didn't, she didn't make the final, but she did very well. Um, a big learning curve, and then the following year went to Barcelona for the Olympics, and unfortunately um, uh, encountered uh, uh, a Bulgarian animal, for want of a better word. She was beautifully positioned to um, uh, on the shoulder of the person in second place, coming off the final bend, ready to to give it a crack to come down the home straight, and uh, Bull Merker. Um, was on the inside and decided that she was coming out no matter what and went ran sideways hit Paula and Paula went out to about lane five mm. and of course couldn't, couldn't recover from that mm. the momentum and everything and, uh, and ended up being about six was it the final no that was the, uh, the heat. heat just pushed out of the heat yeah oh, so me. but you know she was devastating mm. but after that not long after that she sat down with me and uh, and she said uh, I'm I'm going to stop seriously training now and running and competing so I said why is that she said well I've had a fabulous time I've run all over the world I've, I've raced in Oslo I've raced in uh, Russia in Moscow I've been all over the world I've had a fabulous time enjoying myself but she said at Barcelona I realized that uh, no matter how hard I train I'll never beat the East Germans the Russians uh, she said, they're all, they're all on drugs and everything, she said. And she said, I've seen them. We've been there. And he said, I've seen them injecting themselves. I've seen them popping pills. We were in Moscow and there was an athlete there whose who, who bag fell over and there were pills everywhere. They were just scraping up back into the bag. She said, I'll never beat them. So I'm going to say, thank you very much. I've enjoyed myself. Fabulous time. I'm just going to run now for pleasure and I'm going to make a career for myself uh, outside athletics, which is, hey, what a brilliant philosophy mm. you know what i mean see a future after sport yeah yeah, yeah. and now she's uh, she because uh, she was a qualified chemist um she's um uh she's got a master's degree now in physiotherapy and she's uh, she's a uh, high up in management at uh Mirabrit hospital now and uh yeah it's amazing what, yeah. what, what were her times can you run through like the two and one night did she do sprints as well did she have like one she three, four, uh, she ran she, she didn't do sprints she ran yeah. 400 and 800 yeah um 400 was uh 54 two right. was the best uh 800 was uh, uh 159 76 that she ran um and that was a british record wasn't yeah it? Yeah, that yeah. Was a, yeah at that time at that time obviously yeah. that's been that's been beaten then well, yeah it's still been australian record i think <laughs> But, no, they uh, might have. Oh, I tell you what, it probably is. It's probably still in Australia. Yeah. but if she was here. But uh, yeah, she uh, uh, and she she holds the record of the fastest eight hundred meter runner with the slowest fifteen hundred meters. She ran fifteen hundred meters twice, 
and basically she ran 4.36 <laughs> and giving it and said I am never going to run 50 metres again <laughs> staring daggers at she you didn't, she, yeah, she yeah. didn't she didn't like it it's funny isn't it some people just don't want to go there no no, no. it is I did it as well and I never enjoyed it. No, no. Not like an eight. An eight, no. is, an eight is just awesome. Yeah. 1500 is bloody hard yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something else happens to your body, I don't know. Yeah, she just said, oh, it's too far. I said, well, <laughs> basically you go out and, I mean, at a peak of a career, she was out on a Sunday doing an hour run. I said, you know, doing an hour. Yeah, but that's different. <laughs> that's not running really 50. Oh, I said, come on, you know. No, no. Just absolutely no. <laughs> Couldn't persuade her at all. So you coached your daughter to the Olympic Games. Yeah. Is there um, what sort of more successful male athletes you've had? Yeah. Um, um, I've had um, I've had six junior internationals, but over cross country and track. Mm. Two of the two of the boys that I had there have uh, have, have since are still doing very well. Um, Thomas Atkinson. He ran he ran one fifty two with me, and then. Went to America on a scholarship. Uh, kept in, well, they all they all keep in touch on Facebook and one thing or another. Um, and he's just run one forty seven one one. Wow! So that's uh, very nice for for him. Jack uh, Hallis, he's uh, he was more eight fifteen type of thing. He's uh, he's represented England uh, and still is representing England. Um, I forget what his best time is at the moment, but it, they, they all keep in touch. Um, Chloe, she she ran. For England uh, cross country, she, the, you know, the the all together. I think out of the group over the over the years that I was coaching, I had about twelve that got into an international vest, mm. you know. But there was only Paula that actually got two Olympics and World Championships. Mm. But all the others, you know, were, were you know, what a, what a fantastic group mm. I had. There was one at the at the time of our Paula when she was at the, at her best. I got a phone call one day. And I won't mention names, but this person, this bloke, was the fastest 800-meter runner in the country at that time. I'm not talking about Ovetko, not talking about them. This guy had just run 143.3. And he rang me up and he said, oh, I see you're doing all right with your group. Uh, I'd like to join your group. And I said, no. And he said, what do you mean, no? He said, I've run 143. I'm the fastest man in England. I said, no. I said, you will not fit in my group. I said, because basically, you want to come into my group because you just want my athletes as fodder. You want them to be pulling you. I said, the answer's no. And he couldn't believe it. I said, no. I said, I'm not interested. I said, I, my group is my, I, I'm interested in the whole group, not individuals. I said, yeah, I've got my daughter in there, but she is just one of the group. I said, so I'm not interested in uh, in you joining, and uh, he, he couldn't believe it that I, I actually t- turned down a 143 from her. But it, it wouldn't have worked. No. It would not have worked because basically, you know, the 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 group we had, everybody worked together. They all the 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 do anything for each other. They would the faster ones would pull the the well. Let me put it this way: the four eight runners if we're doing fast short sessions, would pull the 15 3K runners on. Mm. And when we're doing the long efforts, it was the other way around. It's, it's so important, isn't it, with a oh. squad? Uh, if you have a squad that can work together like that, yeah. and you do share in the victories, I mean, the kids that probably who ran with Paula would still feel they were part of that. Oh, absolutely. 
Well, you've only got to look at, even now in Australia here, the group I've got now is, is really gelling into a fabulous group. When we go racing, they're all down at the side of the track cheering the, the mates on. Mm. You know, they're all cheering, the, you know, the, the, and, and vice versa. They're all there, you know, and, oh, good luck, come on. And, and that's what it's about, is, mm. is the camaraderie and the, everything together is, is what, what it should be. And, and I wasn't prepared at that time to, to disrupt that. And, and that's what I'm building here. The, the athletes here are, are fantastic. They, they, are, they are really, really, really want to have a, a, a real go and see, and see what comes out. I mean, I've got one or two athletes that, come, that just come maybe once a week or once a fortnight. Well, that's fine. Mm. That's up to them. But uh, at the end of the day, I'd like, I'd like... I was asked, only a few weeks ago, I was asked, here you are now. What ambitions have you got? Me personally, mm. um, because they the, the talked to one or two of my athletes, you know, what would you like? Oh, I'd like eventually to make the Olympics, which is great. I always say, aim for the top of the tree, and if you just fall short, you've done damn bloody well. You know, you're only just below. But I, I said to him, I said, well, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I've achieved quite a lot personally in my own life and, and also with the coaching back in England. I said, what I would like... Here now, he said, I'd like to do exactly like I did in England and take a 10, 11, 12-year-old and I said, I'd like them to, actual fact, one day to be putting on an Australian vest. I'm not saying at the Olympics, the World Championship, but I'd like to say that this athlete that I've brought through that has gone and put on an Australian vest to represent Australia. And that, that's, that's what I'd love. I'd love that because I know the excitement and the pleasure that they would get out of achieving it. Mm. And that's just putting on that vest. Not, never mind winning a gold medal or anything, but putting on that vest to say, I represent my country is, is a wonderful achievement. That's um, a very good lead into my last question. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing this very well. It's like you've read my notes. Um, <laughs> what makes you happy? I get, the, I get a tremendous amount of pleasure. When we're at a race meeting and I'm stood at the back up at the back of the stand and I see my athletes racing and when they finish whether the first or last or whatever and they've done well and you see the pleasure on their face it, it, it's not it's not just about winning when they have done so well I, I'm there I get a, a warm glow inside knowing full well the the feeling that they've got inside them at that time to say I've, I've really done well I've, I've got a better time or I've qualified for this or I've even just a PB the pleasure that they get because especially with a lot of the younger ones I'm stood there and they'll come running up oh I've got a PB and they come and they want a hug and they want and that to me is brilliant that is that's the pleasure I get out of their achievement not mine it's, it's not about me it's not about me at all. It's always about them, what they want. And, uh, and I, I, I'll always be like that, that, you know, I, I've, I've had my time, as I might say, as, you know, I, I, did, I did reasonably well at soccer. I did really well at badminton and I got some success as coaching. But now it's all about get them, get them up to uh, their achievement get them to, to achieve what they hope. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure and an honour to speak with you today. My pleasure. No problems at all. If you like today's podcast, please forward to all your friends and subscribe.